0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. My name is Rick Kleffel, and today's special edition podcast is a live location recording. As listeners to this podcast will know, on Saturday, May 20th, 2006, I participated in the Santa Cruz County Arts Commission presentation for their selection of Lori R. King as the Artist of the Year. I moderated a panel discussion on the mystery of writing with the participation of Lori King, Morton Marcus, and James Houston. Melinda Rambo, chair of the Santa Cruz County Arts Commission, first presents Ms. King with her award, and then the panel discussion begins.
1: Another of the County Arts Commission programs is the Artist of the Year Award, given for outstanding achievement in the discipline of performing visual or literary arts. The recipient must be a resident of or operating in Santa Cruz County, have a national or international reputation, and have contributed to the local community through their work in the arts. We are fortunate to have in today's audience a few former artists of the year, and I would like to recognize them now. There is Jim Houston, Morton Marcus, and Paul Whitworth. Finally, I'd like to thank the County Board of Supervisors, the County Arts Commission, the County Parks Department and all who helped to make this profile performance possible. And now it is my pleasure to introduce the 2006 Artist of the Year, Laurie King. I'd like to present Laurie with a proclamation in honor of her achievement as Artist of the Year. I was really hoping for a tiara. Whereas Laurie R. King is an internationally known New York Times best-selling mystery writer who has written 17 books in three different genres as well as a number of short stories. And whereas Laurie King went from life as a theologian to life as a writer in 1987 and since that time has become one of the most respected mystery writers in the country, writing books that are notable for their intelligence, strong female characters, and well-crafted prose, and whereas, Laurie King has won the Edgar and Creasy Awards for A Grave Talent, the Nero for A Monstrous Regiment of Women, and the Macavity for Folly, and also received numerous award nominations for her work, including The Agatha, The Orange, The Berry, and two more Edgars. And, whereas, (laughs) The Beekeeper's Apprentice was chosen by the American Library Association as one of their notable books for young adults, and several of her books are required reading in English courses scattered across the country. And, whereas, Lori King regularly donates her time and her books to local organizations, schools, and libraries. And, whereas, her books hold an undying place in the hearts of readers, ranging from 14-year-old girls to members of the House of Lords to 90-year-old retired Air Force Colonels.
2: And everywhere in between.
1: Now therefore I, Mark W. Stone, Chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors, here proclaim Lori R. King as Santa Cruz County's 2006 Artist of the Year and honor her for her significant contributions to the arts and to the community of Santa Cruz County. You can, but I'm going to introduce I'd oh, okay. okay. like to introduce Rick Cleffel. He is going to head the panel discussion for today. Thank you.
2: I, I just wanted to say that one of, the, one of the things I will treasure most in here is the idea of being a respected mystery writer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second part of the profile performance to celebrate the selection by the Santa Cruz County Arts Commission of Laurie R. King as Santa Cruz County Artist of the Year for 2006. This portion of the performance will be a panel discussion of the mystery of writing. Our panel today includes Laurie R. King, Morton Marcus, and James Houston. My name is Rick Cleffel. I'll be moderating this panel. And after the panel discussion, we'll be taking questions from the audience, but first, let me introduce the participants. Lori R. King is the 2006 Artist of the Year. Ms. King, an internationally known New York Times best selling mystery writer, is the county's 21st artist to be so honored. She's a third generation Northern Californian. She's got two children, a BA in comparative religion, maybe the two are related, I'm not sure, and an MA in Old Testament theology, which you certainly need to have those two kids, and an honorary doctorate from the Church of Divinity School of the Pacific. She's a best-selling author of the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, including Locked Rooms and The Game. Her new novel is The Art of Detection, and it's a Kate Martinelli police procedural following on from her Edgar Award winning debut, A Grave Talent, but she's folded in her Sherlock Holmes work as well. She's written a post-present dystopian novel titled Califia's Daughters as Lee Richards, and the suspense novels Folly, Keeping Watch, and A Darker Place, welcome to Laurie King. Thank you. Morton Marcus was the 1999 Santa Cruz County Artist of the Year. He has published 9 volumes of poetry and 1 novel. His poems have appeared in over 80 anthologies, and he has read his work and taught creative writing workshops at universities throughout the nation. This year his literary memoirs, Striking Through the Masks, will be published as well as a new volume of prose poems, Pursuing the Dreambone. His radio program, The Poetry Show, is the longest-running and the oldest poetry program in the nation. A film historian and critic as well as a poet, his reviews appear regularly in West Coast newspapers. And for the past seven years, he's been the co-host of a television program, film review called Cinema Scene, which broadcasts in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome, Morton. (laughs) And of course, Jim Houston has lived in Santa Cruz for over 40 years. He was chosen County Artist of the Year in 1986. He's the winner of many awards for his writing. He's the author of 20 works of fiction and nonfiction, including the widely acclaimed novel Snow Mountain Passage. With his wife, Jean Wakatsuki Houston, he co-authored Farewell to Manzanar about her family's experience through the World War II internment, and it's now a standard work in schools and colleges across the country. He recently completed a new novel, Bird of Another Heaven, and that will be published next year by Alfred Knopf. Welcome to Mr. Houston, please. As we talk today about the mystery of writing, we hope to illuminate what writers do to create the work that we read to explore the journey from the center of their brains to the book in your hands. All right, let's go. Hit it. Okay, I'd like to ask, have each of the participants describe to us how a project has started. Do you start... Something that was actually published that we could go out and buy, I'd like to have each of the participants tell us when and where they first began that work. Was it at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning in front of their pad with their fine pen? Was it while they were driving their kids to school? Tell us and let us know to the beginnings of the mystery of writing. Jim. Oh, Lori, you've got a great story too, don't you? That's.
2: You want to you hear the same story I already told? Now, yeah. Is do that? Is that on?
0: Is this thing on? I
2: think. I think. Is it on now or is it? Did we just turn it off? You know, we, we writers. Okay. Um, I actually started writing um, <clears throat> on a Monday morning <laughs> when my when my kids were. Um, we're off to school, and my son had just begun preschool three whole mornings a week, and I sat down in um, the converted bedroom that was my study and wrote, "I was 15 when I first met Sherlock Holmes, 15 years old, with my nose in a book as I walked the Sussex Downs and nearly stepped on him. And you know, I don't know where that came from, and I didn't ask." Morton.
3: Well, I'm in a little different situation here since um, um, I write poetry. And um, I also write prose and also write novels. Um, uh, So I'll answer this two ways very quickly. Um, With poetry, it is either a series of words and sounds or an image that begins the poem. Why that image comes, why the sounds come, I have no idea. What I know is I have to follow them out. Sometimes I don't have to follow them out, but when I do, um, uh, it's like I'm on a runaway horse who is just taking me wherever he will. That's the first draft. Then um, the real work starts with uh, the revising. Um, With a novel, though, I I write genre fiction also. And um, um, to me, um, uh, even if I wasn't writing genre fiction, story would always be most important. And I would make character, um, I would put the character into the story, even if the story is not um, uh, too well defined in my mind. Hopefully it isn't. And then I will let the characters carry it. But um, um, my novel, The Brezhnev Memo, which I'm sure all of you have read, um, um, started because I was, uh, someone dared me to um, uh, write a novel. And um, they said, you're always talking about the importance of mystery novels and detective novels and um, foreign intrigue novels, you know. Why don't you just shut up and write one? And um, uh, so I sat down and said, okay, I will. And I had met um, uh, two students in Athens, and um, the students asked me to take something to the island of Crete for them. That was it.
4: (laughs) Um, Okay, is this on? This is on? Well, this novel of mine that, that Rick mentioned, Snow Mountain Passage uh, is, has a subtitle, a novel of the Donner Party. Um, I got into that novel because we live in an old house over here on East Cliff Drive uh, that was once inhabited by one of the younger survivors of the Donner Party, a woman named Patty Reed, who was um, eight years old in the winter of 1846 and almost starved to death up in the Sierras when, the, when all those families got stuck up there in the snow, uh, and she died in, our, in what is now our house in, 18, in 1923, um, and we lived in that house for a long time before I thought of that as the subject for a novel. Um, we didn't know that the house had a history when we moved in. It was just the cheapest place we could find in Santa Cruz at the time. Later on, we found out it had this extraordinary history, um, but even then I didn't think of it as a subject for a novel because I was thought of myself as my material was contemporary. Nowadays, some of my earlier novels start to feel like historical novels already. <laughs> but I had not thought of myself as someone who wrote historical novels. But by, a, by an act, by a sheer act of fate, I happened to meet, um, uh, an old fellow over in San Jose who was the, gr- the great-grandson of James Fraser Reed, the guy who organized the Donner Party, and who was uh, the nephew of Patty Reed. And when I met this guy, old guy, uh, Frazier Reed II, uh, by chance, he told me the whole story of my house, the whole story of Patty Reed and why she had ended up in that house, the whole story of of his great-grandfather's uh, involvement with the Donner Party, and um, it was a story that I had not heard before and I knew was not part of the of the literature of the Donner Party, um, and yet was, was very true and very central to that whole episode. And as that guy was talking to me, I began to feel this buzz across the top of my head, uh, which is a familiar buzz to me, um, uh, which I call the literary buzz. Uh, and it comes in various sizes. Sometimes I get a short story size buzz. Sometimes I get a novel size buzz. But what, the, what, what, it, what it means, what it tells me is that there is, there's not only a story here to be told, but there's a mystery somewhere in this material that I can solve, can pursue uh, with words. And, uh, and that was the day that the seed was planted that I could go somewhere with this Donner Party story. But it was a couple of years later before I really started writing, and that was the day I was up in my attic in this house where Patty Reed had lived and died. And uh, I was trying to figure out how to get this story started. After I'd done all the research, and I I began to hear her voice. Um, uh, An older woman uh, who, who had lived in that house. Um, thinking back, a woman of the Victorian period, thinking back on her childhood and what had befallen her family and uh, the riddle of her father's life. And I heard her voice that day and, uh, and that's where Snow Mountain Passage started.
0: I'm detecting a theme here of hearing voices. <laughs> uh, and and this, in, in this case, it's a good thing. I'm wondering if you could... <laughs> If each of you could tell us a little bit about when you when you hear these voices is it something that you imagine the words on the page do you imagine reading the words on the page do you imagine writing the words on the page or do you ima- do you speak them to yourselves morton tell us
3: mm. Mm. <laughs> um This is very interesting. One of my books, which you probably do know, is called The Santa Cruz Mountain Poems. And if you look through the book, um, um, a lot of the poems have titles, but some of them do not. And um, when I would go back into the mountains and sometimes fall asleep like a very young Rip Van Winkle who would get up much quicker also, um, I um, would sometimes hear voices. And um, as I've described many times before, I had... um, um, my, uh, a notebook tied to my belt on an old Kotex bo- um, belt that belonged to my wife. And, and what I could do, you see, there's a reason for it. Mart,
4: the subject is literature.
3: Oh, oh, I, I think I'm in the
4: wrong place.
3: <laughs> um, you can zoom it up on the elastic, you see, so all I could do is, it just was dangling down on my thigh and I can just zoom it up and I could start writing. And this proved to be um, uh, very practical because what, um, I'm sorry, I hope I'm, I couldn't be embarrassing you. I've I read your books. <laughs> um, uh, and I, what I would do is I would just put down these, these words that I heard. And they were actually, I feel, spirits talking to me um, uh, from the, um, uh, the, the mountain paths that I was traveling way up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And um, uh, I never revised them. Those poems are in the book, and they are they're in italics. They have no titles. And I, to, me, to me, I call them the, the voices of the spirits of the mountain. Um, um, when I write fiction, however, my wife has come to the steps um, under the attic where I work and said, who do you have up there with you? <laughs> and um, um, I said, oh, just some friends, because I talk dialogue all the time. Um, you've, got, you've got to be able to hear it. You know, uh, if it sits on the paper, it may well not work. And this is what F. Scott Fitzgerald found out when he went to Hollywood and tried to write scripts. The first thing they told him was his beautiful language and his wonderful dialogues on paper just did not work when they were to be spoken. So I've always followed this idea of hearing voices and actually, you know, I'm making them up too. So very important for dialogue. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, I, I'm sorry, my my image of Martin Marcus has forever changed.. <laughs> um, I, th- I think, in my experience, um, finding a voice uh, has been one of two ways. Sometimes I will find that a character is simply there waiting, and that was the case with with Mary Russell. I mean, she obviously was a character simply waiting to be brought out. And um, there's a kind of shorthand a lot of writers use, talking about the characters taking over. And real writers find this difficult, because it sounds like we're being lazy and, and just letting the characters do what they want. But it's a, it's a shorthand reference to um, the organic reality of, of how a character and a storyline interact. And when you are right on, um, the voice is so strong, you can do no other but how that voice is telling you. Um, Other times I find I have to feel my way into a character. Um, Any of you who were here earlier and saw the words that I was playing with on the screen, or if you go to the, the Park Department website and look at them, you will see a very rough, very bad first draft. Um, How a professional writer can produce these words is a real puzzle because they are simply, um, it is not a story. It is the beginnings of finding the voices of these three characters. It is finding what they are doing um, in the course of the story. And eventually, there will be a story out of that, but I thought it would be interesting to have that compare and contrast. Um, this is a perfect example, I think. It will be when the, when the story mm-hmm. is actually finished, refined, polished, and published. Um, it will be a very good example of how when you first meet a character, you don't always know who they are and what they're doing and how they speak and, and how they feel. And it's a matter of feeling your way. Um, those who write from a, a, an outline do the process differently. Um, I'm not saying that someone who writes from an outline doesn't do an organic job, but the, the growth takes place before the writing does, to some extent. Whereas someone like me, who does not use an outline and simply plunges in, um, depends on the process in order to do the learning. So. That's that's where my voices come. Sometimes they are known, and sometimes they are very slow to develop. Mm,
4: nice, nice. Um, yeah, for, this this gets right at the at the heart of the of the process that we're talking about here. For me, um, the first thing that has to happen to get a story going is to find the voice, uh, to find the 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 right voice, the best voice for telling this particular story. Um, and it changes from story to story, and uh, a lot of times there's some, some trial and error. I, I, may, I go through sometimes two or three or four drafts telling the same story from different points of view, trying to find the voice that releases this material. There's a, there's a certain level of perception, a certain level of insight, a certain, even a certain vocabulary that's appropriate for the story, and you have to find the voice that, that uh, accommodates that. Um, And with Snow Mountain Passage, I started writing in Patty Reed's voice and I knew that at first I thought she was going to tell the whole story Um, and the information just came forth, the details just came forth uh, with great ease. But I got about 60 or 70 pages in and I realized there were parts of the story, parts of her family's story, parts of her father's experience that she didn't know and couldn't have had access to. So there are places that I wanted to go and that material that I couldn't get to in Patty's voice. So I ended up telling the story in, in two tracks. There are two narrative tracks. One is an omniscient narrator, and one is a very close first-person narrator. But it's always finding the voice that releases the material. That's this starting point. As, as Laurie says, and I think it's really true, that's pre-outline. I can't really get into an outline till I know who's, who's talking.
2: Okay. Can I ask? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, Rick, Rick gives me a hard time because whenever I'm on his radio show, he barely asks a question and I take over the thing. So I, I was simply wondering um, how much of the, of the construction of a voice is internal and how much is craft? I mean, how much do you deliberately, you know how you want someone to speak and therefore you choose certain vocabulary and certain attitudes and certain pacings to reflect that in, in your experience?
4: Uh, I don't know if we can break it down into, uh, it's a real good question, and, and, and it's always some of both. It has to be some of both. I'm um, I mean, One of the fascinating things for me about writing fiction and staying with it, and it's true of poetry too, but staying with it over time... Um, and giving yourself permission to try different kinds of voices to to enter different realms of experience uh, you find that that uh, a whole range of people live inside you a whole a whole range of voices are there inside already to be listened to you know we still have the child within we have the teenager within we have the grandparent within we have the ancestors within um, and uh, over time, uh, there are ways to get access to these, to these different voices that are already in there um, and let them speak. But then uh, once that process begins, there's still all the aspect of craft. You're still crafting the sentences. Um, you're still fiddling around with the vocabulary, uh, making decisions, you know, with your critical mind as well as with your, uh, your kind of intuitive mind. That goes on all the time.
3: Yeah, um, I think it may be more internal with me, because the images that Jim used, I've used a lot um, um, in both discussions and in critical writing, that I do feel there are many, many people living inside me, and I think there are many people living inside us all. just go to DNA now, science is beginning even to talk this way. Um, But it is finding that that person inside and letting them speak, I think, um, the image that I have is that with all that hubbub that's going inside, someone finally says, no, it's my turn to talk. And he just pushes everyone back, and then he, he or she starts talking. Now, what's so interesting about that is when a character starts talking, and this is even in poetry because I have dialogue in, um, in my prose poems, um, nuances of that person's character begin to come out in the speech that they use. So you're actually getting character in the way they start talking. And that is extremely exciting to me because I don't know who these people are. In one of my novels, um, um, my hero has been taken captive um, uh, by these smugglers. And um, they stop in a place called Sidia, which is on the east coast of Crete. And um, um, they get off to take on some supplies, and um, the leader just walks off and walks down the dock, goes onto another um, boat, and then comes back with this guy behind him, this big, tall guy. And the guy who's guarding the protagonist says, he's Jim, he's Jim. And I say, who's Jim? I have no idea who this guy is. And he just walks right into the novel. And, um, uh, and he 's fascinating I mean he 's an absolutely fascinating character um, who um, then is developed on the rest of the trip. Um, that does not mean that that's the way it turns out as Jim um, uh, says, because this is this is the beginning and I, I know that Jim probably wants to emphasize this and I do the idea of craft of really making it all work of what Lori says about you know her first draft sometimes I can't even understand my first draft so I have to have my wife interpret them, so I should give her credit for <laughs> writing this stuff. Um, um, but it, uh, it, it's that, that what comes afterwards. All writing, I should say, and I don't know this is one of your questions, to me is discovery. Why had that character walked in? What did these um, series of words and rhythms and images mean? I'm trying to find that meaning. I desperately have to find that meaning, because maybe it gives me a sense of order in the world. Um, but after that, or maybe sometimes before it, comes the revisions, comes the polishings, comes really putting this stuff together. So what you see, as W.B. Yeats says, should seem like a moment's thought just written right off. That's a trick. Art comes from the word artifice, which is false. Okay, We are making what seems to be a moment's um, a thought what seems to be a completely thought-out plot and characters, but it's all tricks up the writer's sleeve, and that's craft that does that.
2: I I, I think that it's interesting to hear you guys say the same thing because I get the feeling that, while we're talking about the mystery of writing, um, when you do these first drafts and these characters appear out of nowhere walking down the docks and, oh, it's Jim, who? <laughs> Where did you come from? I didn't have room for any more characters here. And, and they begin to speak um, in their own very distinctive and idiosyncratic ways. It's really exciting as a, as a writer. And then you go through the first draft and you realize that this exciting and idiosyncratic individual sort of comes in and out like a bad radio station. And, and, you know, so that uh, the one that I'm working on now has six major characters, which is about four more than I've ever dealt with before. And one of them is American, and he has this very strong sense of identity, not only when he's speaking, but when he's in the scene. So that I am, in in the rewrite, I am deliberately honing that sense of who he is and his difference. Um, and going through and making sure that each individual, the, the distinctive characteristics that there are about that person are even more so. I mean, you, you sort of, in the rewrite, you're creating almost caricatures of these individuals that are very clear in your own mind, but to a reader who's not spending 11 months with the book, but maybe 11 hours, that reader has to have as clear a sense of them when you they finish the book as you do when you finish the book, and that I, I, I think is, to my mind, where craft comes in. The problem is that I never took a, reading, a writing class, so I'm teaching myself as I go.
0: <laughs> Jim, why don't you tell us about revision, and let's talk a little, pursue this a little bit more, because one of the things that uh, about revision that interests me is this idea of editing yourself, and you you have to... you you really have to, as you start writing, you have to turn off the editor and then when you start revising, you have to turn the editor right back on. So Talk a little bit about how revising works into your writing. Uh,
4: Well, it's a a constant process. Um, William Carlos Williams wrote a fascinating essay once called uh, Release and Control Um, Mm -hmm. and those are the two stages of the writing process for him. Uh, There's a period the initial period of releasing the material when you, you let everything come out uh, that you can imagine or that you have not yet imagined, and you just uh, move through the material, um, hopefully without a critical eye uh, telling you, look out for this, that's, that's too many adverbs, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, And you, And as Mort says, that's a process of discovery. You're discovering the material, you've got you've to rush about something, you don't want to impede that. But sooner or later, uh, the control factor kicks in, which is your critical sensibility. Your critical mind comes in and says, oh, um, i got four sentences in a row here that, that have the same kind of rhythm. i got too many adverbs here. Um, I'm using this same word over and over again, ten times on the same page, uh, little things like that. That, that, I, that
2: I once used back four ways in one sentence. In one sen- yeah. <laughs>
4: um, and so, uh, you know, that's, and I, I, I go through that process in a way chapter by chapter. I'll write a chapter and I'll go back and I'll rewrite it. Um, then I'll have 150 pages and I'll go back and rewrite the 150 pages and then I'll have the whole novel. My new, my new novel is 485 pages, but only by the time I got to the end, did I trust the beginning? I was not sure that it was gonna begin where it begins until I got to the end, and I really knew what the whole thing was about. Then I had to go back and rewrite the beginning because I understood it, finally. I finally understood what my novel, it took me three years to understand what my novel was about. Um, but then I knew where the, where the proper beginning was. So there's, 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 there's a kind of dialogue that you set up between yourself and the material. And uh, you keep discovering things that cause you to go back and rethink a sentence, or rethink a paragraph, or redo a chapter, uh, and that goes on over and over again. This, you know, 485 pages. Uh, I probably threw away twice that many pages, at least, uh, to get to get those that I kept.
0: Laurie and Martin, why don't you tell us about the, the, Morton I'm sorry. to of the joyous process of killing your favorite children, which seems to be a pastime that writers are constantly engaged in.
2: As one of my children is in the audience, I better be careful how <laughs> I say this. Uh, you're talking about slash-and-burn revision? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, if, if you take as given that language in a piece of prose needs to be invisible, mm. um, any time you have a good piece of writing is obviously something that should be removed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is enormously depressing, uh, because that's the stuff that's fun. Now, I, I get around it by having one of the series is written as if by an older woman looking back on her youth. And I, so I get around the whole language problem by allowing her to be a particularly ornate speaker. So I get to have a lot of fun with language in a way that I couldn't if I were simply writing an American detective story so so this is I recommend this highly if you know if you want to get real fancy with language write historical it's <laughs> you, you you have all kinds of excuses um, but for the most part, if a piece of language sticks out too much, there may be something wrong with it. Um, other times you have really attractive characters whom you just adore but um they don't further the story any. Now, I happen to be someone who writes very small as a first draft. My first draft's about 300 pages, which is when you, when you publish, it's barely 200. So that's, that's really far too short for a full novel. Um, the, the sorts of writing lessons that say every rewrite should cut a third of the language, um, I would be left with nothing. I would be writing novellas for a living, and there's such a good living in <laughs> short stories these days. Um, but, you know, if you take the first draft as a sort of outline that you th- need to then expand, it, it points out to you um, the bones of the story a lot more clearly than if you had overwritten. If my first drafts were 800 pages, um, yes, I'd do an awful lot of slash and burn. But because I tend to write small, um, my rewrites build the novel by at least a third.
0: Th- this is fascinating. We have uh, somebody who writes too big, somebody who writes too small. Morton, where do you fit in the equation? Yeah, that's
3: right. <laughs> too big. <laughs> um, there's the famous um, uh, little talk between Hemingway and um, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald where um, uh, I think it was Fitzgerald, wasn't it, who defined that you're either a putter-inner or a taker-outer. And um, uh, obviously, um, uh, Hemingway was a, um, um, uh, a putter-inner because he started so small, so perfectly. And Fitzgerald you know, had these beautifully mellifluous sentences. It's so gorgeous to read them. Um, um, and um, uh, I like to go for it all um, uh, and then whittle down, but you've got to understand I'm unscrupulous. Um, um, I am like a man with a machete and I know things have to go and I'm just, I'm brutal. Um, uh, After I get past the joy of the first draft and maybe the second draft things really, really have to just tie in because I'm not thinking of me anymore, I'm thinking of you. And that's one thing we haven't mentioned. This whole idea of writing, if you're writing for your journal as a teacher. Um, and maybe as a human being, I'm really not, I can't help you, and I'm not probably interested in what you've written. But if you're writing a novel or a short story or a, a book of poems, then the concern is no longer with the self, but how do you communicate that? How do you communicate that experience as well as the ideas? And if that's the case, then we have all of these techniques we've been talking about, and revision and shaping To get over that impression you want is what's all important. When I teach um, a, a workshop, you know, what I tell everyone there is don't be insulted by what I'm going to say, because what I'm thinking about is the best impression your piece can make on a reader, and that's what you have to be concerned with. So, and the way I do it, you know, I just, because I'm that gushing kind of guy, I just put it all down, and then just um, know that I have to be as ruthless with it as I, um, as I can be.
0: Laurie, Jim, could you guys talk about first readers and audiences? Well, Do you have a first reader, Jim? A first reader? First reader. The per- first person who reads your work after you're done with it and says, oh my God, <laughs> this is wonderful. Or Jim?
4: Well, very often, uh, the first reader is my wife, Jean, who's back there in the back. Um, without whom, uh, I would be wandering the streets uh, <laughs> um, and destitute. Um, but she uh, very often reads first drafts, first chapters, things like that, and uh, with a with a with a very clear eye. And she will say things like, "Are you kidding? Um, uh, Women don't talk like this," or. Um, this, this situation, you know, you, it starts in the wrong place, it's backwards. It's very helpful, to, because Jean is a writer herself, and she's written uh, quite a bit of fiction and quite a bit of nonfiction, and so we uh, we're able to, to do that for each other, and it's, it's a terrific, terrific blessing. But um, usually when I get a novel finished, um, I, I try to find somebody else who can read it, someone... Um, and each novel it's different because the material is different, you know, and I'm looking for different kinds of responses, different kinds of, uh, of um, sometimes if the material is, is very exotic, I'll try to find someone who knows nothing about it uh, to see, uh, you know, again, as, a, as an ordinary reader, this, this, this new novel of mine is, is set partly in Hawaii, partly in California in the late 19th century, it has a lot to do with the the last days of the uh, uh, Hawaiian monarchy and the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. And uh, the woman, the central character is a a mixed blood woman. She's half Hawaiian and she's half California Indian. Um, So getting into some cultural material here that's not familiar to a lot of readers. And yet I don't want the material, the, the novel to be too remote or so exotic that people will put it away. So that's a kind of material I want to test on people who don't know much about Hawaii or much about California Indians and see if it has relevance to uh, just someone who, who, who likes to read uh, contemporary fiction.
0: Laurie, could you tell us about your audience? You, you're writing for a specific mystery audience who already knows your characters, and many of them may have intense timelines posted on the web somewhere. So Tell us a little bit about how you have to deal with that.
2: Well, as, as far as primary readers go. I am in this singularly fortunate position of having an editor who not only actually edits, but who is willing to um, read a book a number of times. I don't I don't know anyone else who has an editor who habitually reads four drafts of a book. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, editors just don't have the time for that anymore. Um, and I am extremely lucky to have somebody that I can give a very rough, really Unreadable first draft to, um, and to to find somebody who not only loves the process of getting her hands in. I think I'm probably one of her few writers who, you know, makes her feel like a real editor. So she sort of saves me for, uh, you know, to allows me to give her my rubbish, and and she says, oh yes, it needs this and it needs that, and it will be fine. Is her is your main main uh, chant that she gives me, um, but. It's, I mean, it's difficult when you have a series that people read, because there are certain expectations. And so if you're not writing in the series, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have found this, if you read one series, you may not like the other one. And it's always the, the sort of wistful, the writer says to them, but but honestly, you might like it. <laughs> <laughs> if you tried the other one, you might like it. Um, it I, I never quite know what to do with somebody who says, oh, I, I only read your one series and not the other. I, you know, you're not required to read any of it. It's really fun.
3: <laughs> My wife loves all of them. Follies are favorite. And I think they are, they're marvelous, too. Mm-hmm. It's great to see um, uh, women of different ages also, you know, which is um, uh, really wonderful. What, what am I answering here?
0: <laughs> well, you're telling us about who's, who's your first in-line editor, who reads your work first? And oh, nobody. I,
3: nobody. Nobody, yeah. Um, Jim has um, uh, read some stuff. I've read some of uh, Jim's novels also um, uh, when they were first done, but it's really nobody. And what's so interesting, um, uh, to just go into this, so I have the microphone a little longer, um, uh, is that when I was younger, of course, there were people who um, I would always meet with, and we'd always um, give criticism. But as you have more and more of a reputation, as you publish more and more, people are unwilling to give you honest um, criticism. So um, um, I just um, have to just be as ruthless with it as I can. There are still those people, um, uh, um, one or two people, a guy by the name of Jack Marshall, I don't know you know him, uh, wonderful award-winning poet, um, and we just um, uh, had a blood pact years ago that we were going to be brutally honest with each other no matter what happened to our reputations. And we still do that. There was one period where we did not talk to each other for two years, but, <laughs> but we're still brutally honest with each other. I think I better abandon this microphone. <laughs> Morton Mark is
0: still brutal after all these years. Oh, we have a few minutes for questions from the audience. Uh, does anybody have any questions? Uh, sir? Uh, The gentleman asked, um, because you guys have just essentially divulged all your secrets and talked about the magic of your art, do you feel maybe that you've detracted from it and asked you to compare yourself to other artists who are more reluctant to talk about their art? Laurie.
2: (laughs) There's there's this, this great passage in one of the Conan Doyle stories where Holmes explains his process of reasoning to Watson, and Watson says, oh, well, of course, I could figure that out if I only knew. Well, Holmes says yes. Well, everyone could figure it out if only you thought about it. Well, I, I don't think any of us think that just because we're talking about our art, anyone's going to be able to figure out what the hell we're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is honestly a mystery. And just because we talk about it doesn't mean that you know we're, we're laying any secrets bare. We're, we are simply <laughs> standing in awe of the process along with everyone else and saying, yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? <laughs>
4: It's it's an interesting question. Uh, I don't. I. I don't know how much people in other uh, uh, creative disciplines spend in public talking about their work. I mean, Paul. Paul, uh, have you have you had experience with this? I mean, are you comfortable talking about acting and directing in a in a public situation? I I think you know we. the writing process and and the way stories get made writers have been talking about that writing about that doing essays about that their whole books about that to ad infinitum um, I uh, and I think writers you know are, languages are are medium so I don't think we're uh, uncomfortable talking about uh, in, in this way I mean I would much prefer uh, to be home you know working on my uh, new book, uh. <laughs> and I know people. I know a lot of people in, in 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 visual arts, and I don't mean to say this. I hope it doesn't sound condescending, but their their medium is is visual, and their their imaginations work in a visual way, and a lot of times they they aren't particularly comfortable trying to articulate uh, or find a vocabulary for expressing what it is they do or how they're imagination works because uh, their medium is not language, their medium is paint or sculpture or, you know, something more, more tactile. And so they, you know, they, they may be more inclined to shy away from a dialogue like this than, than, than writers.
0: We've that, entered, hmm? we've entered talking about painting is like dancing about architecture <laughs> in, the, in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Any um, other?
3: Yeah, I, My attitude is that I don't think of anything that I have spoken to you up here about while I'm doing the writing, but I love afterwards to think about how in the world did that get onto the page? Because I use language in my writing that I never use in my daily life, vocabulary, sentence structures that I just never use. And to me, it is a real mystery. And I loved when Laurie came up with a title for, the, um, for this talk. So um, I, it, I, I just I expressed this to you. And I, I love to hear other way other people do things. And by the way, though, the three of us sound similar. that you, you can have three to 10 to 30 writers up here. Everyone does something a little different you know, or a lot different. But it, it's just after it's over and I see what's there, I'm sort of amazed, and it again shows me that life continually goes back to a sense of mystery and all of the different meanings that mystery has, even the religious meaning. Um, um, so that, that's my answer. I just love to talk about it. I know there are a lot of people, a lot of my friends, who do, do not like to talk about it, and they really think this is an intrusion on in the art, it ruins it for the readers. I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Lori?
2: I, I had just something I wanted to say, too, about that Morton touched a little bit on. Um, I find that when I finish a piece, I'm happy to talk about it. But, um, for example, the the thing that I was doing today, um, the unfinished story, you will not hear me talking about that, what I intend to do with it. Because that is still a living piece in my mind. Um, and I think that that's somewhat similar to the idea of acting. I mean, if, you, if you're talking about what you're doing, you're in danger of thinking about what you're doing, and that's just really getting into trouble. I'm happy to talk about things that I have finished. Um, I never show an unfinished first draft to anyone, with a couple of rare exceptions from my editor where I needed to get some feedback. But for the most part, um, something that is in the process of growing is sacrosanct, and I don't, I don't go there in public.
4: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Laurie. I have the, I, I never talk about a book when I'm working on it. Um, partly for that reason, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to intellectualize the, uh, the, the, the processes, the imagination. Um, and also, half the time, I don't know what the book is about. Um, I, <laughs> this, this novel, <laughs> this novel that I just finished. Uh, you know, I'd be a couple of years into it and people would say, you know, what's your, what's your new book about? And a couple of times I said, well, gee, I gotta get focused on this. And I would, <laughs> I would start to describe it, you know, and I'd get three or four sentences in and the person I'm talking to, their eyes would glaze over and they'd, they're looking around, oh, is there anybody else to talk to? And so, <laughs> so I just gave up. I just said, I'm not gonna talk about this till I haven't finished. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'm, I also um, have the superstition that I'll, that I'll talk the work right out. Yeah. I'll just destroy it. And so it, it's got to remain totally with me until um, at least that first draft is finished. And as I said, and as Jim has said, actually, about uh, finding out where this novel is going for three years, um, uh, a lot of times, even at the end of the first draft, I don't know where it's going. Um, and I'm, of course, talking about poems now as, um, as well as fiction. But what I will do is um, um, I may have to totally rearrange or destroy what I've done by the third draft because I realized I was really supposed to be going somewhere else, and I just um, uh, something intruded. That intellectualizing may have intruded.
0: Any further questions? we'd like to know where the char- when the character comes out, before, after, or during? The, the, the setting. setting. The setting.
4: The setting.
0: The scene of the
4: character. Does the setting come out? You answer first, Laurie.
2: <laughs> 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 um, I think for the, for the most part, um, when I start a book, I, I know where it is, and I know why it is where it is. Um, a, a lot of the books that I've done have been set in England, and there have been certain aspects of that area of England, whether it's a country house or Sussex or wherever, that I knew why I wanted to put it there. And so as I was writing the the story and the characters and the people moving through the countryside or whatever, um, I would I would choose words that would bring out that aspect that I, that I was particularly aiming for in that. Um, again, if you're writing about um, a piece of scenery, a place, a time, you, you have to be really careful because that writing is so pleasant to do. Um, and it, it doesn't usually take the story ahead any. I mean, it, it may teach you what you value about the house or the piece of landscape or whatever. But for the most part, if you have an entire page about the, the, the view from wherever it is, um, if you actually read through with a cold eye, you'll find that you don't need any of that. Um, not always, and it, sometimes, sometimes it's necessary to, to step back and take a lot of time with something, but for the most part, I find that both in books that I read and in things that I write, um, if I'm not actually moving my characters forward through the plot, I'm wasting my time in the book, um, that there are better ways of presenting the place than to step back and, and make a list of what you're looking at.
4: That's, that's really interesting. I. Uh, my, I'm, I'm very involved uh, in all of my fiction in the sense of place and in the relationship between characters and where they live. Uh, there's, for me there's always a dialogue going on between a life and habitat, or life and place, um, uh, as, a, as a shaping factor in a person's <coughs> life. So, uh, you know, and as I think about your question, which is a terrific question, uh, for me, uh, the development, it's, it's not setting. I don't think about setting, but I'm always thinking of that relationship between the character and the place, so wherever a person is located is part of the character development for me right from the beginning. Uh, knowing where somebody's located um, and knowing if they're there by chance or by design, um, what they see out the window is more than just background, what they see out the window has an impact on, you know, why are they there? Um, How does that affect their sense of space? Uh, How does that maybe affect their dreams? Um, It's different to live in the desert than to live in the mountains. It's different to live by the seashore in Santa Cruz than to live in LA. Um, And uh, things like that are character shaping uh, aspects of a story. So it's on my mind right from the start.
2: I, uh, I, I think it's an interesting um, way of learning about what you're writing. And I, and I agree that you the relationship between the character and the place that they live and breathe and love and do their daily lives is absolutely essential. At the moment, I am working at, around this problem because I have a book that is set in three different places. The first is a very rural Cornwall. The second is a country house in Berkshire. And the third is an island off the coast of Devon. Now, I know that I have to set each of those places in those particular settings. But I haven't yet figured out why. And the problem of writing about them is making me look at why those three places, and what each place says about the characters and that episode in the book and the nature of England in 1926. So I'm having to really face, you know, why other than the fact that I like all these places and it's kind of fun to write about different places? Um, because I know my editor's going to say to me, there's this physical jump between those three places and why do we need that? Why can't we sort of cut it down and have it all take place in one, one setting? So I, I have to work this out before I can give her the book. <laughs>
3: Um, Very good question, Um, and the way I will answer it is um, uh, twofold. One is what Jim says. Um, Place, in many cases, dictates character. Um, I told you about that scene um, uh, in Cedia, where suddenly off another boat comes a character. He's coming into that scene very specifically. He is an Australian. What is he doing on the island of Crete? He is doing some very specific things on the island of Crete and why there are Australians on the island of Crete. I did not plan this, but I also had done all of this research as well as traveling there. Now, that's one aspect of of, of using setting and having characters come into their setting. Another is to have a character in his or her setting, because the way a character will decorate their living room or their sitting room is also a method of characterizing them. See? And it, therefore, you're giving description, but you're also showing character in what they live and how they live. It can also be, it can be considered class. It can be considered, considered the level of culture um, or, or um, uh, education. Economics and things like that. We all know, you know, going into um, um, a house that's a a three million dollar house, but it's really um, so garishly um, um, uh, furnished that it is characterizing the people who live there. You see, and um, uh, so that would give character too. Setting can actually, therefore, give character.
4: Yeah, there's a a really good essay by Tom Wolfe called uh, "On the New Journalism." That he wrote back in the 70s when he was talking about how um, reportage was taking over the role of uh, what novelists used to do. Back in the 19th century, it was commonplace in fiction um, to describe everything that was in the living room, everything that was in the dining room, because these are what Wolfe called the, the details of, of the status life. And this is before documentary films, before TV. The novelist would move around the room with a kind of camera eye and tell the reader what station in life these people were at by what they possessed, what was on the walls and what was on the floor. And then fiction, you know, uh, got away from that, uh, you know, stopped stopped playing that role um, and uh, got more and more kind of spared down and internalized and, and Wolf was, by the early 70s, Wolf was saying, we got to go back and, you know, repossess all this stuff. But now we're going to do it as non-fiction writers. And too bad for the novelists. They, uh, they lost out. But novel, novels are getting fuller again, you know.
0: <laughs> well, I believe it's just, we have one more question. Back there? Two more questions. Questioner wants to know what the effect of music is on history and wants to know how you weave that in. Can you do you, how you weave that into your books? No. That's
4: great, great question, Jim. You well, Mike.
2: You answered that. Well,
3: no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> great question. <laughs> <laughs> We're waiting for your great answer. You don't, you don't
4: think it's a great question? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're catching on quickly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no. um, well, I've, I've I've made my living as a musician for a few years and and uh, listened to all kinds of music all my life and. And I use music a lot. In every one of my books, I'm always, I'm always looking for songs that kind of accent or punctuate uh, certain moments in the lives of the characters. Um, and uh, depending on the on the period, because um, we there are there are certain kinds of songs that, that are identified with uh, with a period in in history, especially a period in American history, and. Um, uh, in, uh, well, in Snow Mountain Passage, uh, the, the, the period of time is the late, the 1840s, and as an epigraph, and about the pioneers coming across the plains in that time, and, and uh, for the epigraph, on one of the, one of the sections, I just lifted a couple of lines from O oh Susanna. It rained all night the day I left, the weather it was dry, the sun so hot I froze to death. Susanna, don't you cry. Um, and it's just, you know, uh, puts a little cap right on the top of the, it's a, it's a very familiar song, but a lot of times we sing these songs if we sing them at all around a campfire and we don't really listen to the words anymore. They just, they're kind of rote part of our, our, our cultural legacy if it's there. And to lift lines out like that, and, and it rained all night the day I left, the weather it was dry, uh, it's, uh, for me, it's it's wonderful stuff. And Gospel songs uh, have a great resonance, too. I use a lot of gospel songs, partly because they're in the public domain and you don't have to pay any permissions when you use the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. um, but in, in one novel, I used uh, farther along we'll know all about it, farther along we'll, under, we'll understand why. And uh, that was another kind of epigraph to, to, to point, uh, uh, sort of something thematic about, about a chapter. So I, uh, I, I rely a lot on songs and song lyrics. A very rich source of, uh, of uh, kind of imagery and Americana.
2: I think especially when you're writing historical stuff, it's always great because there's, there's all these songs that you sort of don't think of as being 1920s until somebody says, oh, yes, you know, yes, we have no bananas. Well, I can remember my grandfather singing that. Um, I, I personally um, find it really irritating when a book depends too much on any one thing, like, such as music. And I know there's two or three um, mystery writers out there who, whose books are constantly studded by the music that their character is listening to. And it drives me nuts because I don't <laughs> listen to the same music, and so when Ian Rankin's character,
1: go,
2: I mean, you, uh, you know, I'm so sick of listening to to I- Ian's description of this bloody music that is, you know, he puts it on and it gives him a certain mood, and I feel like saying to Ian, yeah, but what is the mood? I mean, why is he feeling this way? Because I don't speak that language, mm-hmm. and it's mostly mm-hmm. people who are into jazz that seem to do this jazz and blues. That, you know, this is something they assume that you speak the same language, and I don't. Um, you
4: mean everybody so, doesn't listen to blues? Uh,
2: you know, <laughs> it, I don't. Uh, you know, not that much, no. Um,
0: well, you know, Laurie, now there's a lot, uh, trend. A couple of writers have been releasing uh, CDs of the music that's in yeah. the books. Uh, yeah. The last uh, George Pelicano book.
2: Yeah. And and some, sometimes that's really fun. I mean, yeah. Ru- Rupert Holmes has one called Swing, which is set in a, at the um, the the exhibition on tr- Treasure Treasure Island of 1940, is there 37? You know, and it's got all this this swing music that he himself wrote, and it comes with a CD, and it's great fun. Uh, but it doesn't you know it doesn't make you go and look up and you know listen to it. it's sort of like fashion things that a lot of chicklet uses um, you know I mean I wouldn't recognize a pair of Malona Bolonics if I tripped over them <laughs> so what you know other than the fact that I know that that particular brand is expensive I, you know I mean give me a break I don't know what that means
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. the, the the problem that's, with Ian Rankin right. also is a lot of those groups he's talking about are Scots groups. Yeah, and they're, they're small Scots groups, and um, um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I agree with I you. Know. Here, here. <laughs> um, but did you actually mean music, real music, in um, uh, in literature, or oh, you talk about the music of the sentences?
0: I think he's talking about. <laughs> oh.
3: So you you are talking about actual um, music. He's you know? talking about yeah. actual music.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, it, again, depends on the history, but as, as Jim said, just to put lyrics in, you know, um, um, some of those 40 songs. I just purchased um, um, an early album of Frank Sinatra when he was with Dorsey and everything like that, and um, boy, did that take me back to when I was a kid. I mean, you know, lyrics I haven't thought since then. Um, um, and just to, to see those on the paper would um, uh, really just enhance... Um, a whole sense of presence in, let's say, the 1940s in this case, which would also be World War II, you see. And that's the way Jim was talking about using it. Yeah.
4: There's, a, there's a wonderful set of books, uh, personal essays by our friend Al Young, um, where he, he takes, takes off on, on particular songs and the time that he first heard them and writes a personal essay about where he was and what he was doing and why that song was important to him. Uh, they're called Musical Memoirs. One is called Things Ain't What They Used To Be, but the, the title of the, of the essay will be uh, Don't Get Around Much Anymore. Um, and then the, the slug line will be Detroit, January 1954. And that's not when the song was written, but that's when he remembers hearing it for the first time and where he was. And maybe he was with his first girlfriend or, Right in the back seat of a car that his uncle was driving and drinking too much, or something like that, and he just writes these wonderful stories that are always keyed to the song, uh, on a, a classic American standard, and keyed to a time in his life, which also evokes a time in you know, a, a recent American history. It's it's quite a wonderful series. Uh, he won a bunch of awards. You know, he won the Penn West Award for nonfiction when that's when that series was re- reissued.
2: One of the problems of using music, especially especially lyrics, um, in fiction, is that you have to pay. And you know, just <laughs> speaking as someone who who lives off what you know what she writes, um, you could easily work your way through the royalties if you had very many um, quotations to cite in a book. And I had often thought it would be fun to write a book set in the, in the 60s with a lot of the music and um, to use the lyrics. And But, uh, you know, to pay for permission um, would, it would leave me writing the book for nothing.
4: I did that very thing, Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, you're a better
2: man than I am. <laughs> I, no, I...
4: I, I, for several years I played piano, uh, I played string bass behind a very good piano bar piano player, uh, down here in Capitola, in, Sh- in Shadowbrook, in the, in the piano bar. And uh, I wrote a novel about that, which is called Gig, and it's one night in a piano bar told from the point of view of the piano player. And he loves the whole standard American repertoire, and while he's playing, He's not only relating to the characters around him who come into his bar to really go through kind of identity changes as they work out their little personal problems at night, uh, but he thinks of the lyrics that of the songs that he's playing, and I included the lyrics from about 18 different songs, <laughs> and um, I got a <laughs> this is 30. Five years ago, I think I got a two thousand dollar advance for that book, and the song permissions cost me twenty-eight hundred (laughs) dollars. But it was worth it. I mean, (laughs) to get all those great lyrics into the book.
3: (laughs) Jim, would it be worth it now? Huh? Would it be worth it now? I was young. I was younger then. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) there you go. Jim.
0: You said you had to leave yeah, somewhere around 20 minutes I have to leave at five. Okay. I have to, leave, it at okay, that I have to about, leave at five. That was about 20 minutes ago. This is too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, thank you. We've been speaking with Jim Houston and Lori King and Mort Marcus. Thank you very much, Jim. Let's give yeah. a round of applause. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashiltron.com agony.